Welcome to the Talking to Ourselves podcast. I'm Omid Farhang, CCO at Momentum. Today, my guest, Rob Schwartz, CEO of TBWA, Shiat Day, New York. Rob joined Shiat in 1998. After 10 years as CCO and two more as global creative president, in 2015, Rob joined Shiat New York, where he made the uncommon transition from CCO to CEO. During that time, the New York office has enjoyed explosive growth, more than doubling in size, and helping TBWA earn Adweek's Global Agency of the Year and Fast Company's Most Innovative Companies. Throughout his career, Rob has spearheaded work for blue chip brands, including Nissan, McDonald's, Pepsi, and Visa, just to name a few. Along the way, he's won nearly every advertising award, including Grand Effies, Can Lions, and One Show Pencils. Rob was recognized as Think LA's Leader of the Year, and it's considered one of Adweek's 25 voices to follow in social media. The story of his New York office turnaround is a case study taught by Harvard Business School professors. He also has a fantastic podcast of his own called Disruptor Series with guests like Snoop Dogg, Alan Yang, Abby Jacobson, and Alana Glazer. He's a brilliant mind and a guy who us creatives can learn a lot from. This is Rob Schwartz and I talking to ourselves. As you look back at Shiat LA in the early 2000s, um, how was that era of your career setting you up for later success that you sort of didn't realize at the time in terms of you know, developing fundamentals and just learning how to be a professional? Well, at that time, uh, first off, there was uh, – the agency was uh, in a really good place. It just won agency of the year I think in 97. And there were so many good people around. So I think the first thing – I learned was humbleness because everybody was so good. Uh, I just remember like being in some of my first meetings. This is even before we moved to uh, Playa del Rey. This is back in the uh, in the binocular building. And I just remember sitting in my, my first meeting, like my head going left and right and left and right. Like these people are so much smarter than anybody I'd ever worked with. How the hell am I going to keep up? So that was kind of the first, the first uh, thing I learned that, you know, um, good people are around. Right. Um, and then uh, I think the other, you know, big lesson uh, was just watching, you know. Uh, I watched, you know, uh, Lee Cloud was, was active then. Uh, there was uh, so many good creative directors, a guy named uh, Chuck Bennett who just passed away. who was amazing. Um, Clay Williams, uh, Rob Silton, and um, Jerry Gentile. And you would just watch these people. And that's how you start to learn how to be a creative director. And it's like, oh, okay, so – you know, you're listening for an idea or you're, you see something you like and you kind of shush everybody away to focus on something. I mean, all these things that I do naturally now, I think I learned in kind of this osmosis of being, uh, you know, there in, uh, in L.A. Was the cliche of sort of the era up until 10 years ago was that feedback was tough and feedback <laughs> was brutal. Have you seen have you seen a change in feedback? Do you recall feedback being much tougher then than now? Well, I don't think it was called feedback. I think it was called critique. And starting at SVA, uh, there was a guy named Sal DeVito who taught a class. And, he, you know, you'd put up your resin. If he didn't like it, he'd take a, a Zippo lighter and he would light it on fire. That's a healthy thing to do. Yeah. So that's one fun version of feedback. And then, I, you know, I'm, I'm just – I was used to – you know, one of the things that was great about the agency 
was it was, you know, maybe the first agency that worked on walls and worked horizontally and worked on gator foam. I know we take that for granted now, but somebody somebody had to invent that. Right. You know, it's like I love that, uh, uh, that moment in, in Mad Men when Roger Sterling goes, 99 cents. Now, that was a great idea. Right? <laughs> People have to invent these things. But, uh, you know, I remember you kind of go in a room and whether it was Lee or Bob Cooperman, you know, they would start roaming the walls and pulling stuff off sometimes violently. And that's how you knew. And, okay, fine. So if you wanted a follow-up question, you know, hey, what's wrong with this? You know, sometimes what's wrong with this? Everything, you know, <laughs> it's sort of this unleashing of stuff. But uh, one thing about Lee that even though he would, you know, he had a very high standards, he would tear stuff off the wall, he would always leave something on the wall. I didn't realize this at the time, but there was always something. And he'd say, like, this thing's pretty good. Build off this. He right. would never just tear you down. And that's something else that you start to learn. Yeah. You have to remind people sometimes our goal isn't to make 50 things. Our goal is to make one thing. Right. So if 50 things lead to three, lead to one, then that's actually a healthy process. But oh, without question. We're, we're, we're sensitive types, us creative types. That's the problem. Yeah. And I think that uh, you learn uh, what's now known, I guess, as a feedback sandwich. You know, it's like, here's what's working. Yeah. Here's what's not working. Uh, and think about this, you know, moving forward. And I, and I try to teach, you know, people who don't know if I, if I watch someone who doesn't know how to do feedback clients or whatever, I say, Hey, try this, start out with what's working. Cause if you can get someone to see that something's working, even if it's the most minor thing, you will get them open to hearing your feedback. Yeah. The great Lee Clow, I know is a mentor of yours, mm. uh, announced his retirement this year, um, I'm, I know you get a million Lee Cloud questions probably over the years, but I'm just wondering if you can give me one great example of sort of peak powers Lee Cloud. One of the, the Cloud secrets is uh, know more or at least as much as your client. Like one thing, you know, Lee gets a lot of credit and rightly so for, for, for guru-ness, uh, for being a genius, but, you know, the inspiration – but there's also perspiration. I mean, Lee works really hard to really understand a client's business. Uh, I wasn't at the agency at the time, but there was a story that uh, uh, when that, when Shia Day had Porsche, that uh, Dr. Porsche would only want to talk to Lee because he felt like this guy really understands and cares the most. Right. So, um, you were CCO during a ten-year period that you know many view as um, one of a few golden ages during the fifty-year history of Shia. Is there one specific piece of work from that chapter of your career that you hold up as your most proud? Uh, well, it was a great moment, uh, no question. Um, I think the one I'm most proud of is the one that Dave Trott hates the most, and that's the Pepsi Refresh Project. Um, and uh, I think what's great, and I and I love Dave Trott, and I think that uh, he's, he's he's really brilliant. I don't know why he's missing it on this one, but <laughs> that's okay. Um, but I love this one because. Uh, Everything about it was um, both uh, brave and crazy uh, and difficult and wonderful. Um, I mean, working backwards, we got so much press for the brand because we took the brand off the Super Bowl. So, I mean, you know, literally you'd have these uh, news reports, you know, Pepsi makes a major announcement. Right. They won't be on the Super Bowl. I mean, this was news, you know. This was really kind of crazy. Um, and uh, the idea was was ahead of its time. You know, it was a way to get people to uh, take traditional marketing dollars and put them into their communities. And uh, very brave on Pepsi's part. And, and, and just the process itself um, – I remember, you know, the, the two uh, creative, uh, you know, the creatives who came in with the original idea, 
uh, Patrick Almaguer and uh, Blake Kidder, uh, they just opened the meeting. They just said, you know, hey, we're not that far from this uh, this target, and like the last thing the world needs is another you know soda pop commercial. So what do you think of this? And they had this idea that, you know. Pepsi would sponsor these ideas uh, pre-Kickstarter in a very Kickstarter way. Uh, and just, you know, how we had to bring it to life, how we uh, at one point flew Indra Nooyi uh, to our L.A. office. We set up uh, one room that had the entire idea. We set up another boardroom that was this kind of like elegant dinner for her. Uh, and uh, it was with Indra. It was uh, with Massimo, who's Louis client, and uh, Jill Barrow and uh, Lee and me and a few others. And we had dinner, and we had a very nice dinner. And we said, hey, we've got an idea. Can we show it to you? And we literally walked out of this one room into this Pepsi refresh room. And I just think Indra was just so blown away. She's like, oh, my God, how could we not do this? So right. it felt so unimpeachable. You're right. I mean, I remember that campaign well, but um, it's interesting to hear you say it was sort of Kickstarter. It was a brand inventing Kickstarter before the internet did. Yeah. Um, my brother Amir told me to tell you that Nissan, uh, the Nissan line, dogs love trucks, is the greatest line ever written for a truck ad, just as an addendum to that. Yeah, well, uh, Nissan was doing trucks long before anybody, uh, doing dogs uh, long before anybody else. And that's thanks to Lee. I mean, that was really kind of his campaign. And uh, yeah, it's got everything Lee written all over it. So. I'm fascinated by your transition from CCO to CEO, um, and it's a really small fraternity. Uh, as I was telling you, I was at Crispin Porter when Andrew Keller was hmm. making that same transition from CCO to CEO. Um, you don't have a lot of counterparts. You've made that transition, and it, it got me thinking about why that is, and I, I'd love to get your perspective on that. Do you think it's more because creatives don't dare to set their sights on that role as part of a successful career progression? Um, or is it more due to just sort of myopic thinking on the part of agencies? Hmm. Well, it's probably a combination of both. I think one thing that um, – one thing I learned is that uh, you go from a great job. I mean being a creative director, being a chief creative officer, I mean this is a great job. But you go from a great job to the best job. And I don't think people realize how cool and how rewarding it is to be a CEO. And uh, for me, uh, what I did is, uh, you know, like you say, it's, it's a small fraternity. You know, I look at Bill Birnbach. He was, you know, when uh, Troy Ruhannon said to me uh, summer of 2014, he said, uh, you know, what do you want to do with your career? And I'd kind of hit the ceiling a bit. I wasn't really sure. Uh, and I didn't know. And I kind of hemmed and hawed. And he just sort of said, why don't you think about being the CEO of New York? And... It was an interesting moment because I looked just as you know you suggest. Okay, well, who else has done this? Uh, and there weren't a lot. Um, Bob Cooperman was was one person I knew, you know, from uh, from Shy Dayland. Um, Bill Birnbach, of course. So I started to look at the music business. So when I looked at whether it was Quincy Jones or uh, Barry Gordy at Motown or Jay Z, I thought, oh, okay, these are creative people that went from creativity to enterprise. And I think that's the key. And I always do this metaphor when I tell people, you go from one slice of pizza. I love pizza, right? One slice is amazing. But what if you got the whole pie? And that metaphor is really the difference between a CCO and a CEO. Right. That was a lot in there. I apologize. No, it's a, it's, a, it's a fascinating parallel that I hadn't thought of, but you're right. Um, and when Jay-Z made that transition – uh, or when any sort of artist turned executive makes that transition, questions arise about um, what skills they have that will play immediately and where there's maybe a disparity of skills. Were you, were you conscious of 
where you had a disparity of skills or, or where you needed to get smart really quickly in order to sort of mm. fill this, fill the, the gaps of this new role that you'd never really experienced in a previous role? Well, I think I look like a lot of people, uh, I got into advertising so I didn't have to do math. So the first thing was, uh, hey, I better I better figure out like what a spreadsheet looks like. I mean, I didn't I didn't have to do much math as a uh, as a creative director. And when I say math, I think uh, you know finance uh, itself uh, is like learning a language. You know, whether you're learning Italian, you're learning Mandarin, you're learning finance. Um, so understanding the words, because I think. Even as uh, you know, a writer by trade, whenever the finance conversation would start to happen, not only would I glaze over it, but I'm like, why can't they just use the word money? And you start to understand the precision of the language, you know, just between, uh, I don't want to bore the listeners, but, and, and I'll tell you, you don't have to know all of these, but the key, you know, understanding what revenue is, the difference between revenue and profit, and the difference between capital, just if you knew those three words, you'd probably have 99% of what you need to know. Right. So. So there was no concern up front that like, well, I think in some cases there are CCOs turned CEOs, but it's really an honorary title. And then the, the onus is on the agency to surround that person with the people who know math. Um, but you took that responsibility on. So you were sort of conscious of not wanting the kind of the Trump dumbed down one page brief treatment. You know, I'm the CEO, but you guys, you guys have to adapt your language to my, to my, uh, uh, abilities rather than me sort of stepping my game up. You were conscious of that. Yeah. Well, I wouldn't want to be linked to Trump in any way, shape or fashion. So, uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, I think, uh, um, you, it, it's not dissimilar to being a creative director in the sense of, you know, I may have a feel for art direction, but I'm not going to show up and tell you, oh, this should be Castle on 540. You know, people have their expertise. And I think it's the same in the other parts of the agency. You have to leave a lot of room for the expertise. And I think it's your role as a CEO to be um, – kind of the, you know, the office of judgment, you know, the office of common sense, uh, and then the office of vision, you know, and those are the kinds of things that uh, I think are really helpful versus, oh, I really understand the minutia of, uh, of you know, strategy. Right. This type of transition can't happen at a company that doesn't, you know, truly put the creative product at the center. And I'm guessing, um, you know, you don't get too far astray from the work itself, but how drastically different is the programming of your day-to-day -day since becoming CEO? Well, uh, it's a lot different in that the things that I'm focused on uh, are not only the creative things. Everything is in service of the creative thing, but they're not uh, only the creative thing. And, um, you know, what I started to do is uh, really kind of look at successful companies, advertising and beyond – and, it, you know, and it comes down to, you know, and I'm a, like, you know, reductivist kind of person. Uh, so I just reduced it to the three components, you know, the people, the process, and the product. I mean, as simple as that. And as a creative director, you're very obsessed with product. Uh, and then as CEO, you start to see, oh, if I get the first two right, we can get the product right, get the people right, get the process right. So you look at kind of two-thirds of the world that you're not looking at uh, as a creative. Right. A big part of being a creative leader, though, is, is predicated on instincts um, and on taste, 
what part of your job is having the restraint to not do the job that you used to do that you've hired a CCO to do? Is that part hard for you? Uh, it's only hard when uh, when slides are ugly with too many words and ideas are complicated. You know, it's only it's only ugly when things are not at their kind of you know creative truth. Right. Um, but I think that's where Chris Beresford Hill comes in. I mean, he uh, you know in some ways he reminds me so much of of who I am uh, as I tell him you know all the time. But he's so much smarter. He's so much more creative. He's a much better writer. He's got much better abs, much better uh, biceps. So in some ways we are very connected, um, you know, at a root, but. You know, he'll just bring things to me that, like, I never could have gotten there. Uh, I'm going to embarrass Chris by divulging that when he appeared on this podcast, I would ask him questions, and he would give the most intelligent, insightful, charming responses. And then at the very end of the response, he would stop and look at me and go, wait, can I do that again? Uh, I, I, I don't like that answer. Can I do that again? I go, Chris, that was, like, the best answer I've ever heard to that question. Um what does this tell us about Chris Beresford Hill? You know, uh, I mean, first off, I think that he's um, he's a real student of the game, you know, and uh, he knows he really knows the difference between what's good, what's great, and what's iconic, and that's not always easy. So start there, right. um, and then add to that, he's uh, he's a very good human being, and uh, he's brought this. Um, Kind of level of kindness that I, I've never seen in an agency, and it's a it's, it's it's a core to his being. Both both he and Nancy Reyes, you know, I brought Nancy Reyes in, uh, and she's our president now. And I think that they, um, apart from ambition and 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 trying to be great, trying to be like a like a real force uh, in our business and in the culture, they also want to do it in a way that is very kind. Yeah, you use the pizza analogy. Um, in our business, there's a lot of meetings and there's a lot of swirling activity that poses as progress but isn't really progress. In terms of uh, at least one distinct slice of that pizza, from that CEO perch, what part of your job is protecting the creative department and the creative process from bullshit? Well, I think that uh, you know there are a couple of ways uh, I can bring that to life. I think the first is that the agency um, is kind of uh, – Built for speed um, and built for the reduction of nonsense. Um, you know, sometimes I hear from people, you know, their, 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 their war stories about the antagonism between account people and creative people. There's none of that. Everybody's organized around the creative product. So that, I think that's the first thing that reduces um, some of that uh, bullshit, as you say. Um, I think the other thing is that we move at speed. Um, so we have this phrase, New York hustle, global muscle. Uh, the hustle is real and people are making decisions quickly. And I think one of the things that uh, really hurts agencies is when there's a level of navel gazing and agonizing over certain decisions. And I think the, you know, what CBH can do is he can sniff out a good idea very quickly. It reduces the anxiety of it and, and the kind of hemming and hawing, and we get on with it. Right, yeah. Yeah, there was a way of doing things that felt like if it wasn't painful, then, you know, you weren't doing it right. And it's like, well, what if we're just decisive? And what if the best idea is 
in the first meeting. It doesn't mean it has to be, but are we open to the possibility that, that the first time we sit down, we hit on something that it maybe isn't just great, but iconic. And you're right. And I, I feel like um, the, the world has sped up and clients expect work to happen a lot faster. I'm sure you, you know, your days at Shiat LA and the sort of like, we're going to make a spot. <laughs> we and, got two weeks yeah. of concept and yeah. <gasps> and, and those days are over, but the 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 speed has changed, but the expectation of quality hasn't. Right, and so it requires a different level of decisiveness. Right, but I think that the uh, that um, decisive culture, uh, I learned that uh, as a creative director. Right, you know, and um, yeah, I mean, I think uh, you know the other thing. If people have listened this long, I, I feel like we do. We, they deserve a little gift. I mean, I'll give people the the secret to new business, and the secret to new business is you have to be seventy percent right and then one hundred percent committed. And I think the problem that I've seen where whenever we failed, uh, when I've heard from other people failed, it's when the agency is trying to be 100% right. There's no way in new business you will ever be 100% right. So find something that you like and fucking make it happen. Since we're talking in percentages, what percentage of the work that you show in a pitch that turns out to be a winning pitch actually gets made? Uh, 8%, right. 4%. I mean, get over it. Right. I think the other interesting thing, I mean, to no, get us on a tangent it's the, on new business. It's the but. dirty, no, but it is, it is the dirty secret of new business is the, the idea is important only in showing them how you think and how you unpack an idea. You actually have to have that meeting in order to win the business, in order to get the, get to know them well enough to get to the right idea. Every so often you get to the right idea, mm. you know, without requiring those steps, but I mean, I'm sure you've experienced it many times where you win a pitch and the first thing they tell you is like, so we're not making any of that, but we love you guys and we love the way you think. Your your knowledge of our company by virtue of of just, you know, the way that the world works is limited. So now let us let us let you behind the curtain and let's do this together. Without question. And I think what's what I've observed, maybe you've observed this too, is that the creative part of a pitch used to be so important. Like if you had to rank it you know, that was an eight and other things, you know, were threes and fours. It was that important. I think you look at a pitch today and it's like uh, creatives is almost the, the least important part of the pitch these days. These clients want to understand who are the people? What's the process you're doing? You know, do you have any kind of proprietary tools? Do you have any subscriptions to social media uh, things? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And you have a nice idea too? Oh, okay. Yeah. Why don't you show us that? I mean, it would, it would be crazy. like going it, – it's interesting. It would be like going to a first date to someone's apartment where they make you dinner and you base the entire you base the entire date on the quality of the dish that was made versus like this dish – I can improve on this. But if we're having a longstanding relationship, then the chicken and asparagus should not decide whether or not we're going to get into a relationship together. That is a great analogy. I'm, I'm taking that one. Take it. Um, <laughs> You've said like five things that I'm going to take. So, uh, as a CCO turned CEO, are you prone to be too hard on creatives or too soft on creatives? Um, too hard or too soft? Uh, sometimes both. Um, I'm like a real pain in the ass about clarity, simplicity, and good-looking slides. Like everyone makes fun of me. I know this, this is an ugly slide. You're going to hate it. Um, but, uh, on ideas, what I've noticed is, um, I, 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 I force myself to not invade the idea too much. I really try to look at it like, you know, just the person in the bar seeing something on TV or, 
you know, am I going to, is my thumb going to stop on this? I really try to be the audience. Right. And it's working. <laughs> <laughs> it has. You guys have had, you've had an incredible four years as CEO and in the last two years in particular, as you've hired Chris and hired Nancy and, and surrounded yourself with more people mm. you trust and you see the results. Um, since becoming CEO, how has your role in client meetings changed? And, and relatedly, how has your relationship to CMOs changed? Well, that changes immediately. I mean, I remember, I don't know, day three, maybe it was day two, I mean, just getting an earful from a client uh, on the second day of my you know, CEO <laughs> life. Uh, and you realize at that moment, like, oh, when the shit hits the fan, you're the fan. Right. <laughs> you know? right. Uh, that's, that's one thing. The other thing, this is going to sound uh, very minor and stupid, but I will tell you, it, it, it was palpable and noticeable. We were going to a client meeting. Uh, it was me. I was with a um, terrific creative director named Walt Connolly. Um, and we were the planner. And we show up at the building in New York. And we're kind of waiting, and uh, there's just the three of us. And uh, the guard at the building said, you know, who are you here to see? And uh, I knew the client. I said, uh, is this this client or this client, you know? And they were like, oh, I don't know. And at that moment, I realized, holy shit, I'm the guy who's got to worry about <laughs> making sure we know how to get into the fucking meeting. Like, where is the address? Who are we talking to? Like the details of like account management, I didn't ever have to do that. And suddenly, like here was this one moment again, like week two, I had to do this. I was like, oh my God, I have to think about all this stuff that I never had to think about. And it's hard. The CEO's <laughs> responsible for the dongle and making sure the room is connected. You know, if you're in like- I joke, but that's actually a very- That's totally- That actually can completely submarine three weeks of work. Oh, you have no idea. Yeah. And, and you start to- um, I had this theory. Uh, it's 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 it'll sound old fashioned for your younger listeners, but uh, you're, do you like the Beatles at all? I do. Okay. Well, it's my Beatles theory, um, and uh, you know, you start out as John Lennon. You're like, fuck the world. I'm gonna fuck everybody. I'm gonna make a dent in the universe. I'm there. I'm gonna be uh, amazing. Then you start to have a little success, and you're like, you graduate from. You know, I wouldn't say graduate, but you go from John to Paul. And you're like, yeah, man, we're like, we're fucking popular. People love us. Let's make more of this stuff. But maybe people can like us. We don't have to be so angry. Okay. Then you become George. And you're like, you know, we're really popular. I'm not getting enough of my stuff in, though. I mean, I love that we're really popular. But I, I can do this without these guys. I'm going to go off on my own. And you often go off on your own. And you realize, wait, wait, I'm lonely. I think I just want to come back. I just want to be part of something great. So you become Ringo, and you just play along with the band. Now, you can stay Ringo. It's a wonderful life. But if you want to become a CEO, there's one more place you have to go, one more person you have to become, and that's Brian Epstein. And Brian Epstein ran the Beatles. He ran the enterprise. And that, your dongle thing is Brian Epstein would sweat. Does Paul have his bass? You know, does you know, Ringo have his rings? Whatever it was. And you forget these little things, but that is everything. I thought where you were going with that is, and then at the end, you become the fifth guy who no one remembers his name. Pete Best? <laughs> yeah, Pete Best. And you, you die penniless and alone and unremembered. Okay, I'm glad where you went with it. That was way more uplifting. That, that, that's, that's plan B. Yeah, okay. <laughs> um, well, is there ever a scenario, you know, given your background and, and given your years being John Lennon in the room, being the front man and presenting the work, is there ever a scenario where you still – 
you know, the, the moment overtakes you and you present the ideas portion of a meeting or is it sort of like a, you know, Dave Grohl getting behind the drum set, you know, once a year, maybe you do it. Yeah. I mean, I think if we, if we, if we plan for it, you know, yeah. we try to be uh, as planned as possible. And I, listen, I, um, you know, I, I will only show up in a vacuum. Like if we don't have a line for something and no, nothing else is good, I might say, you know what, what if the line is this? You know, but uh, for the most part, I don't, you know, I don't want to be in the kitchen. You know, I don't want to be making the stuff. We have really good chefs and it's okay. Now, now when you do that, as a CCO or as any senior, a uh, member of senior management, I think you're always looking for the people who, whose opinions you respect and whose taste level you respect, who also have the courage to speak truth to power. And then you become CEO and it probably, I would think, you know, that problem only magnifies when you write that line at eight o'clock at night because you're not feeling anything else on the wall, you start seeing a bunch of heads nod yes. You know, do you feel it's incumbent on you to get people comfortable enough to say I hate that or that's bullshit or say what's really on their mind? Well, I um, I don't like to do it in public. Right. So what I would do, and you know, this happens rarely, rarely, but I will just have a quiet text to uh, CBH and I'll say. What if it was this? And, right. he, and, and he knows. He, and believe me, he's shit on all kinds of suggestions I've given to him. Uh, if it works, he'll be like the first guy to say, okay, this is great. Or yeah. I'll say, nope, let me do this. I've got the same relationship with Momentum CEO Chris Weil. And I think sometimes you benefit from the distance mm -hmm. from the work where you go, what if it's this? And you go, God, I think you might have just solved it. I've been banging my head against the wall. And other times Chris has been living it and you haven't. And he probably goes, dude, there's a lot – there's a lot of information that you don't have here, and I think we got a different yep. solution. Yeah. So, um, okay, I'm going to ask you a sort of trite question. Okay. When I was at Crispin, um, I remember Andrew becoming CEO. When he became CEO, he started to dress differently, <laughs> and he and I talked about it. And and it the the clothes that we wear do project a message about us. And I think creatives, you know, purposely dress kind of schlubby. And I think deep down, the reason we do it is because we want our clients to know that we're so creative and good at what we do that we get to wear pajamas to work. Now you're sitting across from me, you're wearing a beautiful suit and tie. Uh, did you feel obligated to, to change how you dress and change how you projected yourself when you got the new job? Yeah, well, very premeditated. Um, yeah, I read a, uh, an interesting piece on uh, Abraham Lincoln. And, um, you know, one of the things that uh, Lincoln did, you know, uh, really well was that uh, he showed up well. And, uh, you know, the country was, you know, being torn apart, you know, it was the worst time in our history, even worse than it is today, if you can believe it. But he made it a point that every morning, you know, he, and by the way, it wasn't just that he had um, work problems. He had, you know, wife issues. He had kid issues. I mean, this guy, he was in the perfect storm. But he would show up every day and he, uh, you know, would be uh, – project something positive and, you know, he had a, his great uh, Brooks Brothers suit and uh, he would, uh, you know, just kind of listen to people and try to, try to make it happen. And I thought, OK, that's lesson one. That's pretty good. Um, so first things first, I needed to send a signal that the person I was isn't the person I'm going to become in terms of my function. And uh, I would read another good piece on Lou Wasserman who um, – was the, uh, the guy who basically turned MCA into the largest juggernaut yeah. in Hollywood. Um, and when he came from Cleveland out to, out, to, uh, out to L.A., he looked around at these other agents and he said, my God, you guys look terrible. We're asking clients to give us millions of dollars and you guys look like I wouldn't give you my lunch. 
And um, he said, that's it. Everybody, we're going to wear black suits, white shirts, black ties. And as soon as I read that, I went, that's it. And for the most part, over the last four years, I've worn a black suit, white shirt, black tie every single day. And those are the reasons. All right. Um, this is a transient business. As the rare person in our industry who's largely stuck at one place, um, what advice do you give to younger colleagues about the need to plant roots? Yeah, well, the the, the business is different. I, I always felt that if um, you're at a place that is kind of growing you and allowing you to be uh, the best you can be, why leave? I think a lot of times people leave because they feel that, oh, I should leave because I've been here two years and now I have to make the jump. But, you know, oftentimes you're in an agency where people really value you and want to grow you. And I think because of this talent war that we're in now, I think more and more good management is going to find good people and grow those good people. I mean, we're you know, we're investing a lot of money uh, in, in in coaching programs and, and really trying to grow our best talent. Yeah. And, uh, you know, not all attrition is bad, but, you know, not having attrition is good too. Yeah. I, I've seen it less in agencies, but I, I was – when I worked at CAA and now hmm. with American Express being a client and getting to know uh, more of the client side of American Express, you see people having these 20 and 30-year – uh, careers at one place. And it seems like the key to it is sort of what you've unlocked, which is, can you figure out how to have, you know, chapters? No one wants to do the same thing for 30 years. So can you, you know, can you have five careers housed within one building? Well, that's a great way to put it. I love chapters. I mean, listen, just, just to, you know, TWA shy a day alone. I mean, I was a, you know, an associate creative director. I was a ECD. I was a CCO. I was a, a this um, a global job. I was a global creative president. Uh, then I became a CEO. I mean, you know, I did, you know, kind of five jobs just at one place. Right. And, and it only it only works if you don't lose your sense of curiosity. Um, and it was so interesting to hear you say the thing about spreadsheets and and finance and not being intimidated by that world, as I think, as I think a lot of us are. Um, because, yes, you can learn it and you have the intellect to learn it. But you also talked about that phone call that you get from a CMO. And that guy or gal doesn't give a shit that you're like, you know, in, in training and development and learning the language <laughs> no. of finance. Like they need you to be on point and an expert on that phone call. And if you're not, you can undo a lot of goodwill that the, that the agency has built up. So, um, I mean, have you found that to be a little bit of a high wire act in terms of just getting really smart, really quick? Yeah. Well, uh, some of it is getting smart quick and some of it is, is keep getting smart, you know, keep, um, Watching stuff, uh, reading stuff. I mean, I didn't really, I didn't really know much about strategy. You know, I think as as a creative, your um, uh, you know your spidey sense is like, okay, I can work with this, or God, that sounds so stupid, or you know, why do we, why do, what is this fucking brief? Right. Um, but what you don't realize as a creative, at least I didn't, and maybe I was very naive this way, is just how much work goes in before the brief shows up. Right. So as I started to learn a bit more, okay, I'm going to read a little John Steele. You know, I'm going to, I'm going to, you know, uh, you know, start to go to some of these other strategy sites, not just, you know, my favorite creative sites. 
and try to learn a bit about strategy. The same way, uh, you know, I, I you know was watching this um, uh, MIT finance class. You know, I was you know doing my stupid stairmaster. You know, and I think you know ninety percent of it I didn't get, but ten percent of it I said, okay, I can start to use that. So, uh, my point is, you know, you have to be kind of a lifelong learner, and that's really one of the secrets to longevity. Yeah, it's. I mean, that's the fifth or sixth time you've mentioned um, kind of a uh, a an input outside the bubble of advertising that has informed either your your management style or or your professional development. And as you're bringing those up, I'm realizing how how rarely I hear people in our industry talk about that. And part of it is there's there's great resources within the bubble. We're all just trying just to be the best CCO is hard enough. Oh yeah. Um, but you also limit yourself if you're not if you're not seeking inputs outside of that bubble. Um, as a guy who's been also you know at the same company for for 20 years. Um, you've seen high highs and you've mm. seen low lows. You've seen golden ages. You know you've worked directly with the founders and and made them your mentors. You've seen exoduses of talent and um, you know the the doom of the agency. You know twenty years in, what is your relationship to failure? How do you view uh, failure? Yeah, well, I think it goes back to um, the idea of the agency. The same way we pitch ideas to companies, uh, you know, the idea of, you know, the two strands of DNA, TBWA and Shiat Day, these are companies that were ambitious from birth. Mm -hmm. They wanted greatness. So what's interesting when you look at the, uh, the legacy of things, there's a lot of failure. And um, – what I've come to realize is that, you know, Nelson Mandela, he had it right. You know, he, he's got that great line. He goes, I, I never lose. You know, I, I either win or I learn something. And um, what I've learned about failure is that, uh, you know, it's a classroom. Like, take some fucking notes. Sometimes when you, when you do things right, I, I don't know what you can learn. <laughs> Okay. But when things go bad, I mean, man, you know, and and to turn that around and do, I mean, there's a bit of a kind of a failure porn industry in our world these days. But 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 it's it's right for a reason, which is when something fails, you can immediately go, okay, there's five things I learned. I mean, it's it's all right there. All right. Um, well, along those lines, I, I did want to ask your perspective on internal comms uh, and getting an agency aligned around some sort of big, simple, shared goals. Um, you know, you're, you're raised at an agency that have values and sayings in place that are set by these industry titans who were your mentors. Um, and timeless though they may be, you don't want to be a company that's stuck in the past mm. and saying the same thing for 40 years. How do you find your own voice in terms of introducing new thoughts, new values, new North Stars um, without tr trampling on that right. bedrock uh, created by your mentors? Mm, that's a great question. Um, you know, when uh, when I start, I think, I think it helps – that I started as a writer, so I knew the kind of power of a, of a good slogan. But uh, when, I, when I took on the, uh, the New York thing, um, I, I used our disruption framework. And um, uh, my disruptive idea behind everything was um, startup hustle, global muscle. And I knew, okay, well, let's, but we, let's build a very New York agency. So I just turned that language into New York hustle, global muscle. And uh, I can't tell you every time people see that, they always react to it. They always smile. They always tell me that they love it. So part of the way to answer this question is you're, you're going to need something. Your reign, if you're a leader, you're going to need some phrase. 
So get over it. You're going to have to write one. Uh, that's kind of the first lesson. So that, that was one. You know, the other thing was um, I write an email to the agency every Friday. Uh, and um, usually I don't know what I'm going to write Thursday morning. But the week sort of happens and I kind of wake up in a panic, the good kind of panic you have as, as a creative person. Uh, and Friday mornings I sit in my bed and I just peck it out on my, on my iPhone. And whatever, whatever, whatever the reason, I don't know, however it happens, it just happens. Um, and I think the writing of those emails, you start to have your voice um, literally and, and it starts to develop. And uh, from those things, the ideas emerge. You know, you find something that happened in the week and you can expound upon it and suddenly there's something someone can go, oh, yeah, let's use that next week or whatever, six months down the road. Okay, so your Friday email. I remember a couple of years ago you sent one of your Friday emails uh, th essentially thanking a team for voluntarily skipping a bachelor party to work the weekend on a pitch. Yeah. Uh, and then Agency Spy ran the memo as something of a sort of gotcha piece yeah, yeah. about how you're you know, insensitive to the free time of your, uh, of your employees. Um, is this current environment where sort of one misunderstood or misinterpreted email um, that can sort of undo a career? Have you, have you found that changing your behavior or what you really want to say? Or, or what was your takeaway from that experience? Well, uh, you know, it was surprising because, uh, you know, I, I felt uh, that was an email of, you know, maybe what used to be shy day and night culture. You know, I, th I think one of the things out of the whole ordeal, because I, you know, I was very upset by it, but I think one of the things that came out of it was after I kind of got over my upset about it, I said, well, what can you learn from this? And I think that it helped me see that, yeah, the world has changed. So, uh, you know, and so in some ways I'm, I'm, I'm grateful for that agency spy piece. And I, I encourage anybody, go look it up. You weren't grateful the moment it came out. No. It, I mean, I just looked at it last night as I was doing some research and I, I – Reading it back and the way that they frame it, it's like, God, this is such bullshit. Yeah, well, they, listen, they got a job to do. You know, they, they made it into clickbait. But when I reread the email, there really wasn't a word I would change. It really was in praise of Jexy and Nuno. I mean, these guys really, you know, they, they, they were ambitious. Yeah. They wanted to make something happen. And I wanted to make sure that people knew that these guys sacrificed something and that it's okay sometimes to sacrifice. Now, whatever it was turned into, okay, that was really terrible. But – all that said, uh, I did start to rethink a bit about um, not work-life balance. I think work-life balance is bullshit. But work-life integration, how are you going to integrate? Because that's what the, the – one of the real amazing things about advertising is that it's something you love to do. So you love to do it in the same way you may also love to do what you do on the weekends. So how are you going to – Take all the things you love, some of which you're getting paid for, and make it work in an integrated way. And I think what, what that whole ordeal really helped clarify for me was it's, it's um, uh, work-life integration, yeah. not work-life balance. Yeah. Um, you've seen over 20 years, you've seen really healthy agency culture quickly rot. Mm -hmm. And you've seen you know, broken culture quickly repaired. Um, what's the harbinger of things going wrong at an agency that you're always sort of diligent to sniff out and pounce on? Well, that's a great question. You know, you always know it's a bad agency when uh, there's more, you know, me than we. I mean, that is uh, – that's one of the biggest issues. And and, and I, I, I shared this with um, 
I shared it originally with uh, this notion of um, people going from being a, a writer and art director into an ACD role. I call it from buddy to boss. You know, you have to sort of, you know, move up. And one of the things that I tell, and you can do this if you're becoming a creative director, it's for, it's for rising talent going from, you know, the pool of people to the leader of people. Uh, and the thing you have to do is you have to flip things upside down because as the, um, as, you know, just a, you know, a creative in the business, it's all about you. It's me, 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 and I want my stuff and, you know, for my website and all that good stuff, my book. And, um, you have to turn that upside down. You have to really focus on the clients. What, how are we going to help the clients? Then how are we going to help the agency? Because uh, if you do those first two things, that your star is going to rise. Right. And toxic environments, everybody's out for themselves. Everybody, when are they going to get their raise? Who's going to be my boss? Why didn't I get that assignment? It's, it's like a um, – it's just an entire agency of – single people right. uh, versus a agency that's humming. Uh, it's not always perfect, but there's a harmony between the people and people are trying to work towards a greater good. Yeah. And that's the biggest difference. I heard someone say it so, so concisely. It's just like, there's only two kinds of agencies. There's a place where people feed off each other and there's a place where people feed on each other. That's great. And you just have to decide, you know, and once I heard that, it's one of those things that you hear and you can't unhear it. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. Um, are there ever ways in which you can be complicit in creating the conditions that you don't want? Uh, yeah, I'm sure. Um, yeah, I mean, I think if you, a uh, part of, um, part of what I tried to do when I came to New York was I knew what, a good TBWA office looked like. I knew what a good Shiat Day office looked like. I'd, you know, worked in one in, in LA. I'd worked out of one in Paris. I'd worked out of one in Tokyo. So I just try to um, be those kind of agencies. Right. And by being those kind of agencies, I think you avoid, um, you know, this stuff that leads to the toxicity. And it, it's usually about, as the leader, you not being a servant leader. I think a lot of times toxic agencies happen when the leader is kind of too obsessed with themselves and um, yeah, not working. You know, you have to work for the people. It's not the other way around. How would your most loyal employee describe your management style? How would your most disgruntled employee describe your management style? Uh, loyal would say, uh, you know, what I try to do, which is an old Confucius line, which uh, will sound sexist as I say it, but that's the way Confucius wrote it, which is, if he works for you, you work for him. If she works for you, you work for her. If they work for you, you work for them. Uh, that's about servant leadership. And I think anybody who likes what I've done will say that I'm there every day for them. I'm not there for me. I'm there, whatever they need, I'm trying to help their ideas and all that. Uh, somebody disgruntled, um, I don't know. They might just say that uh, I, that that they don't believe me in some way. You know that 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 why would someone you know want to give so much to an ad agency? Yeah. All right. <laughs> yeah. Since becoming CEO, what have you gotten better at saying no to? Well, saying no in general. Right. <laughs> I've gotten pretty good at that. I used to say yes to everything. Um, I mean, we had a meeting yesterday on some new business prospects, and I would have pitched them all. And uh, our 
our leadership team uh, had a case why we should not pitch any of them. And after they were done, I thought, fuck me, you guys are right. <laughs> so uh, I think the relationship between impact and revenue, you know, what you can make money on and how you can impact the culture, uh, those things should be more aligned. I mean, deep down, do you view those things in three buckets? There's things that drive revenue but have low creative opportunity. There's things that have high creative opportunity but low revenue. And then every so often, if you're doing your job right and get lucky, the two are the same thing. I mean, is that is that the right way to think of it or is that sort of overly simplistic? Well, I always thought that the best agencies – I think that's a good method that you have. Um, my method, what you call simplistic, mine was even more simplistic, which was – you know, any successful agency, you got five clients for dough and five clients for show. And uh, that's been the legacy of our business. What I'm noticing, though, now is that we might have started with five for show, five for dough, but the dough clients are becoming show clients. And that's when you know you've got a healthy agency. Right. Well, hopefully the dough clients see the work happening in your building on behalf of the show clients and say, I, I want some of that. And then that that opens the conversation of if you want some of that, then we've got to change yeah. The dialogue around what's happening when we bring you work. Everyone knows the right things to say. Everyone knows, well, we got to be really brave with our ideas and we've got to, we want to feel sick to our stomach. Everyone knows the right things to say and has the right script. You know, putting it into action is a different thing. You're, and especially, you're so you know, right. And these CM, the average CMO uh, career span now is like 13 months or something. Wow, down yeah. to 13. Woo. Yeah. So um, definitely sympathetic to the pressure that they feel. You know, they come into these jobs and it's, well, test and learn. Test and learn, but you have to be right the first time. Otherwise, you lose your job. <laughs> right, yeah. right. Um, in 2017, you created the Disruptor Series podcast. Uh, what was the genesis of that show, and, and how have you seen it progress over the last two years? Uh, well, I don't think it's as good as talking to ourselves. Let me start there. Uh, this is a very good podcast. Um, the genesis of it uh, – Doug Melville and Walt Connolly, uh, two people who work at the agency, uh, came to me very early on before 2017 and said, hey, we think we can you know, bring in some outside people to the agency and um, just kind of, you know, bring some energy and stimulate people. And uh, we want them to be, you know, disruptive people and uh, to live, you know, the mantra we're living. And we think we should call it the Disruptor Series. And at that point, you know, I was kind of like, yeah, okay, I guess bring someone in the agency, fine. Well, these guys were right. So they started bringing people in. And it was really good. And we had these um, very powerful live shows. And, you know, first it was 50 people. Then it was 80 people. Then it was 130 people. Like people were liking them. And I thought, you know, these conversations are really good and we're not capturing them. I mean, we had great people. You know, Brian Koppelman was live, you yeah. know, the guy who's, uh, you know, who invented Billions. He's the showrunner for Billions. We had uh, Julie Rice from, um, from SoulCycle. You know, and I'm kicking myself now. How can we not have captured this, you know, on, on film in any way? So about uh, whatever it was, a year and a half in, we thought, what if we also did this as a podcast? And uh, that was the genesis of it. And what we tried to do was, um, you know, unlike this show, which is quite focused, uh, and I love uh, that it's very focused, ours was going to be uh, decided unfocused. And I wanted it to be uh, what I would call horizontal thinking. I wanted things not from advertising, but kind of on the on the outside of advertising, that if you're in advertising, one day, three months from now, you can go, oh, remember that thing I heard on that podcast with that woman who said that? I think that's what this idea should be. That was my dream. Right. Yeah. When you create a podcast, I feel like there's, there's some intended benefits. You know, for me, it was like, I want to develop my own 
MBA program for for creative directing. Yeah. Um, but then as you go down the path, you start to notice some unintended benefits. And for me, it was like, this has turned into an incredible way to communicate with creatives around the country and around the world who are in our company, who I, you know, just don't have the time and scale to develop relationships with mm. on an individual basis. But this medium is so personal that if someone listens to a few shows, they really get a sense of what you value and get to know you personally. Um, I'm wondering if for you, there's been any unintended benefits that you sort of didn't realize when you got into it. Well, I, I think before I address that, I think I have to say one thing about your show, which I think is really good, is that you know I will I meet I meet with people all the time. I don't care what level they're at, coming out of school, whatever, you know, uh, former clients. I talk to everybody, and invariably these young people will come to me and they'll say, well, okay, if you had to recommend, you know, you know something about how to be a creative, like what would you recommend? And I think heretofore I always said the same thing: read Luke Sullivan's. Hey, Whipple, squeeze this. This is the best book on, uh, you know, understanding, you know, concepts. But I think the value of your show, now I tell them, read Hey, Whipple and listen to talking to ourselves because you're going to learn how creative people think by these conversations. And uh, so I think your, your show has become that. That doesn't answer your question, I know. I'm not crying. You're crying. You just, <laughs> no, it's you true, just mentioned me in the same sentence with Luke Sullivan. That's no, no, probably the nicest compliment I've ever received on this podcast. No, Thank but you. think about it. Think of all these people you have. You have such wonderful guests, and everyone's so revealing. It's amazing. Uh, I mean, I learn shit all the time from your show. Your question was unintended uh, benefits. Um, you just, I know, at, least, at least for me, I'm not meeting anybody I thought I would meet. I mean, I'm, you know, I just met this kid... Uh, he's 28 years old. He couch surfs, but he's got a content business that provides educational content for Western teachers. I mean, I, there's not one part of that conversation. If you told me before I met this kid, I was interested in. But after I met him, I was like, wow, this is really amazing. And it's given me a lot of ideas about maybe there are ways for us to do more kind of peer-to-peer -peer learning in the, in, the, in the TBWA collective versus just trying to, you know, send people to a podcast or to a book. Well, and as I've over the course of this conversation, seeing how much you prioritize outside inputs, uh, I mean, you basically productize that into your podcast, you know, and, and the more episodes you listen to, the more you just start to draw parallels between what we do in our industry and what these people who are developing content outside of our industry or developing business outside of our industry are doing. Uh, and, and you just start to make those connections and it's powerful. And you realize you're sort of part of something bigger. Yeah, well, I think... Um you know, we can get very uh, insular in the advertising business, and I think that insularity has also bred some, um, you know, ambivalence on the, on the consumer so uh, or the audience or whatever we're calling people who need to see advertising these days. So I'm a big believer of, yes, see all the great work in can. Yes, you know, uh, pay attention to, uh, you know, ads of the world or what have you. But at the same time, can you not just bring me, you know, an advertising thought, you know, we need something that's not, you know, what we're, what we're typically used to. Uh, what I'm seeing is that, you know, we have, um, I'm starting to feel like we have, we have a bronze farm, meaning there's a lot of thinking that we're doing from that we've seen before in the world. So we're going to do it again. And guess what? You're not going to win a gold on that. You're going to win a bronze. Why? Because it's been done before. Right. So you need, we need new stuff. Right. <laughs> I want to thank you for doing some of the best work of the past two decades, but also 
um, for building a career that shows creative people what's possible if you never stop being curious. I, I really enjoyed this, man. Thank you. Yeah, it's great. No, thank you. This is a great podcast. So thank you. Thanks, man. All right. Thank you so much to Rob Schwartz. Thank you to JSM Music and Jeff Fiorello, the executive producer of this podcast. And as always, if you're enjoying the pod, please subscribe. Please share it with a friend or colleague. And until we talk again, peace.